0: Hello there, my name's Sean and welcome to The Game Pit. This is yet another one of our Pick It Over the Bones episodes.
1: Hello, Ronan here, welcome to episode 28 of The Game Pit. We are going to be talking about four more games this episode, giving you our quick thoughts on the, going over the rules and having a quick discussion as to how they played for us. This week, I am going to be talking about two relatively quick card-driven games, that's Splendor. And Valley of the Kings. Sean, what would you like to talk about?
0: Well, Rodan, I am going to be talking about Vikings and fauna.
1: We just want to give us a quick thank you to everyone we met at Luncon 3 this past weekend, everyone who we met and played games with, and met around the place and possibly even in the bar. Thank you. We had a fantastic weekend, and we hope you did too.
0: And as always, you can catch us on 2d6.org, along with a whole host of gaming goodness. And we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network, along with the very best in board gaming podcasts. this episode is a game called fauna which was released in 2008 and it's from hutch and friends amongst others and designed by friedman Fries, who is the very famous designer of the likes of copycat power grid friday Famiglia, and a whole host of other games it plays two to six in time frame of about 45 minutes and it's a slightly different game to the type we usually cover because this is an educational trivia game where players use, I suppose, educated guesses to bet on the habitat, dimensions, and weight of a host of animals from all over the globe. There is a couple of other games based around this sort of style. There's Fauna Jr., which came out in 2010 for the younger audience, and Terror will be released this year and this is about places around the globe rather than just animals so that's going to step it up another notch really so how do you play fauna make no mistake this game is incredibly simple with very few rules and very few components the game comes with a board and a map of the world on it on both sides in fact and the map is divided into sections on both land and water the game comes with 180 double-sided animal cards and these are green for the easier animals on one side and black for the more difficult animals on the other side the animals are going to sit in a box and that box obscures the lower half of the card face and this is deliberate because on the top half is a picture of the animal the name its scientific name the number of locations on the map that it can be found in and it also asks you what players are going to guess basically for this round be it weight, length or tail length. Now players are now going to place their cubes in their colour of which they start with seven on the board in order to guess what areas the animal is found and the weight, the length etc. The rule here is that only one cube may be placed in each map area or weight length section and the players continue placing cubes one by one until everybody passes. It's Now that the bottom half of the card is revealed, which has all the information formally required and the black cubes are placed by the start player on the board to signify the right answers. Points are given to the players with cubes on or adjacent to the right answers or areas on the map, with correct answers obviously getting more points than the adjacent ones. Any cubes that do not score at all are not returned to the owning player unless it would take them below the threshold of three cubes, as all players must have at least three cubes each round. After each round, or animal if you want, one cube is returned to each owning player if available. And the start player token is moved clockwise, and you're going to guess on a, on the next animal. There's a set target for players to reach, and once a, one player reaches that, they're the winner. So not a lot to it at all, Ronan.
1: Sean, I think you're going to tell me off for trying to read too much into this game. The concept of it is great, okay? In theory, this idea of it being fun and you're sort of giving a guess as to where these animals come from, how big they are and all the rest of it, it it does, you know, it, it sells easily to me. But the reality is, it's just a total, total guess fest. Everything is so obscure, it's so... I have no idea whatsoever i just have i i don't know is that particular animal in the horn of africa or the great rift valley or rhodesia these these are all areas on the board i I, how am i to know
0: this well i think you are and as you've correctly guessed i i'm going to take you to task for reading far too much into it it's an educated guess you guessed the right area in fact in that you think these animals might be in south america in africa asia Wherever you want to go, are they, they land or they water? If, if they're birds, that's not always. Some of them live in and around water areas, so there are slight educated guesses, and it's just fun learning about where all these animals come. And well, did you guess right the weight, the the length, the weight of these animals? It's, it's educational because sometimes you look at these things and you think, oh well, it's definitely got to be that big, and then it turns out to be absolutely tiny or completely massive, and your way out. I just, I just think it's a lot of fun. It's one of the few games that I could probably play with my mum and that's, that's, that says a lot because she would get it immediately. It's a, not so much a gateway game, it's just a game that I think anybody could sit down and have a bit of fun with.
1: Now, there's tons of games you can play with your mum they are just all rubbish, like <laughs> Snap or LCR <laughs> or uh, all these games that are just complete. This is random! What, what continent will you find a honey badger on? Europe. <laughs> it's Africa, apparently. <laughs> I know that I watched the Dice Terror review. You can't, you, you just, you think it's an, you're saying it's an educated guess. It is not an educated guess. It's just a guess. We know nothing about the world around us. I've played it a few times with different groups of people, and we are uniformly rubbish at it. Also, not only is it a complete guest fest, but it's a complete guest fest that throws annoying Euro mechanisms in there, like the scoring and you, you having to count up. and It's it's not even like a, a quick, fun guest fest. When you start trying to explore the scoring to people, you're trying to explain the scoring to your mum, she's going to go, what? what? Because of how many areas I score what per what and the adjacence of, of who with the her? And hold on. Say you had guessed Honey Badger and chucked four or five of your cubes into Europe. What would have happened to those cubes, Sean?
0: You would have lost them. But you that's would have lost what, them. Weird.
1: The game punishes you for not knowing stuff. How is it a fun, like, friendly game when it's punishing you?
0: You've just got to realise that you you don't push yourself. That's it. Because ever, otherwise, everyone will just fire all their cubes every turn, get them all back, and you just got if you're not if you're not completely sure, or you're not haven't got an inkling of where things might. You might just go gentle on the cubes and save some for your next round, where you might have a better idea of. I guess the animal. I, d- I really think you're firing too much into this poor so, little game.
1: If I haven't got an inkling what the right, the right answer is, I shouldn't play. That's what you're telling me.
0: If you haven't got an inkling, you have a guess. It's not. You don't always have to know things. You can have, have a little guessed, guess.
1: Like how many different land areas are there? Forty or fifty? And, and the chance of me getting it right is not good. And then I'm just going to be punished because my cubes come dribbling back to me of one per round. And if I get behind that far in cubes, when you get the easy ones, like a sea creature that's in most of the areas, I then don't have the cubes so that players who've got them left, who got lucky before I've got the cubes, they'll score more points, they'll get in the lead, I then have to start taking a risk in order to try and catch them. Because of the odds, I'm probably going to miss out on that risk, lose more cubes, get further behind.
0: The game that we played at London On Board, and my subsequent games, I would say 8 out of 10 people get the right continent and the right area. No,
1: you're... Mu- one person will. One person of the four or five players.
0: No, you're not. The no, right area wrong.
1: will be found amongst all the cubes that are on the board. But 50% no. of the cubes are just getting wiped out all the time.
0: 8 times out of 10, 8, ty- eight animals out of 10 animals, people people's cubes will all be in and around the same That's area.
1: No, you're talking they- crazy.
0: No, no, mate. Absolutely not at all. It's, that has been my experience of every time I've played this game, mostly. Sometimes it throws you a complete curveball and you're like, oh my God, I didn't think that would happen. I thought that I definitely thought that was in Africa and it turns out to be in Scandinavia or something. I played this game with an 11-year-old boy who managed to guess a good amount of time, seven or eight times out of ten, as I said before, roughly where the habitat of these animals were roughly how big they were roughly how long they were roughly how long their tails were whatever the question was he, he he made he made good guesses now i don't think he was completely lucky sometimes he might have been lucky but he couldn't have been lucky all the time he always had a general idea of where these animals might have been now yeah he's he's a bit of a crapshoot sometimes but i, I don't i don't mind that in a game this light
1: okay look I kind of sound like I hate it. I don't hate the game. It's not completely awful. It's just... uh, It's not very visually appealing. It's not all that fun because it's a bit too frustrating. It's a bit arbitrary. People can just get lucky with certain guesses. It gets to a point then when you have to start following each other around the board. If someone goes into South America, I have to go into South America, and the next person goes into Africa, I have to go into Africa, because if they get it right, and you give them, like, the monopoly on an area, then you're going to lose all the rest of your cubes. So you're kind of hedging your bets just to not get punished by a game, which is sells itself as being a family game, and a fun game, and a friendly game, and it's not quite that. Okay, if you want to switch your brain off, which is the opposite of what I want to do in a game like this. I want to be intrigued by the questions. And have some sort of a clue. And, and sort of have some deduction to how it's going. Maybe chuck some cubes down. And then somehow get some feedback on how close we are. And go from there. That would be better off. This is just turn brain off. Throw cubes at the board. It's almost like going, going, gone. With, with an animal aspect to it. It's okay. you know. I don't mind it happening to me sometimes. But definitely not one I'm going to seek out. Sean.
0: Well, for exactly the reasons uh, Ronan said, it is a turn your brain off, have a little guess, have a little bit of fun with the family. I do take on board a lot of what Ronan said, even though I did get a little bit excited at the, the, the vitriol he was pouring on it. I think it is a guest fest. It doesn't really hold up to multiple plays, but I think for every now and again to learn about the world, to learn about animals, it is. Definitely a game that I'll be looking to play with in the future with my son. I bought it for that very reason and I think it is a nice little addition to my collection. I would heartily recommend this game to families with younger children who just want to learn about the world. Ronan mentioned earlier that we know nothing about the world around us. Well, how about this for a starting point? It's an easy game, easy to pick up. I think the spider Ronan says it is a lot of fun. And it's a great game to play with your family and your younger children. So that's Fauna. So the
1: first game I'm going to talk about this time round is the Spiel des Jahres nominee for 2014, Splendor. It's for two to four players, although we have sneakily played the odd five-player game of it, and uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. It takes roughly 30 minutes, probably a bit longer for your first play, but as you get better, that time comes down as usual. The designer is Mark Andre. Now, he hasn't had many big games out before. The only one that's actually ranked on Board game Geek is Bonbons. And from Space Cowboys, the publisher, again, not many games out previously from them. Black Fleets being their previous biggest release. Now, the theme of Splendour is that each player is a sort of renaissance area gem merchant who's attempting to develop a gem industry by mining gems, transporting them, and then selling them through shops, and they're trying to catch the eye of visiting nobles by doing so. There's more theme in that one sentence I've just said than there is in any play of this game, but there you go, I've given you the theme as it is. During the game the merchants the players are going to be collecting chips which represent the different types of gems in the game they're going to be tempted to purchase cards which represent sort of the infrastructure of your of your gem industry i guess and the cards are going to give you bonuses towards future purchases and also possibly score you points and they're also going to try and attract these limited number of nobles available during the game and we'll explain all that in a minute. So. On the turn, when one player at least reaches 15 points, the game's going to end. Whoever's got the most points is going to win, and it definitely is a race to get your tableau built up and your point generation going as quickly as possible. There are six colours of poker chips in this game which represent the gems. There are five colours of gem, and one which represents gold, which acts as sort of like a wild card, and I'll tell you how I can get them. There are three layers of cards, and they are laid out in rows, and four of these cards generally in a four-player game are available For each level for the players to buy so you're looking at at 12 different cards but to start with you're not really going to be chasing the bigger cards because they are quite expensive they have a cost in the bottom left hand corner and it's going to be a certain number of gems So it might be for the small one possibly let's say two blue gems a green and a red however For level 2, that's going to get more, you're going to want 4 of something, 2 of something, 1 of something, something along those lines, it all mixes up. And then for level 3 cards, it's going to be even more expensive. In fact, they're more expensive than there are chips of certain colours in the game. So how are you going to be able to buy them? Because, when you pay the cost for a card, you take that card and you put it in front of you as a tableau. Now that card is going to be one of the 5 colours of gems. It is now going to count as one of those gems towards all future purchases. So if my first purchase is a red card, from now on a card that will cost a red, a green, and a blue is just going to cost me a green and a blue. Simple as that. And I can build more and more and as many I want, as I want of these cards in my tableau in order to help me towards future purchasing. So how do we do it? Well, on our turn, we can do one of three things. We can either collect gems. When you collect gems, you collect one of three different colours, Or you can collect two of a certain colour as long as there's a certain amount left in the stock. You can't just empty the stock out and there's not a lot of um, gems in the game. It depends upon player count. The second thing you can do is then, of course, purchase cards, and that's just by paying the cost, either in cards already laid out in front of you, or by having to throw gems in, and you get the card and place it in front of you. Now, the card may or may not come with victory points. It's more likely that the cards in levels two and level three will give you more victory points towards that 15 victory point total. And the last thing you can do is reserve a card in the display. You can only have a maximum of three cards in your hand, and if you use your turn to reserve a card, you pick it up and you take it into your hand. It gets replaced immediately, but you get one of the gold one. Card chips and that can be used to spend as any color towards any card you wish to buy. The last thing you can do to score points is attract nobles. Now, there's a set of, a amount of them come out randomly for each game, and for each of those, they're not looking for chips to attract them in, but they're looking to see how good your business is, how good your infrastructure is. They want you to have a certain number, a certain color of cards in front of you. It may be that they want you to have four red cards four blue cards, four green cards, for example. And the first player to have that at the end of their turn automatically attracts that noble and each noble is worth three points when you attract them. So definitely building up your tableau is something that's very helpful towards the nobles, towards getting the higher level cards which are scoring more victory points and everything is aimed towards this race for points. Sean, that is every rule in the very simple, very quick to play Splendor. Do you want to hit me with your thoughts?
0: Right. Nothing about that description as eloquently as you put it or even the rules explanation with the game in front of me made me want to play this game it just looks like it's going to be completely naff there's a lovely english word for you but it's actually a really good fun game and it it forces you to make decisions that you don't think you're going to have to make when it all starts so that's that's such a bonus. It's just it's almost like a surprise. This game to me, Ronan.
1: Yeah, it almost seems too simple, doesn't it? When you explain it and you show it to people, and definitely when you first start off, because it starts off really tactical, might be almost be going too deep on it. You don't honestly have much of a direction you're going in you're just going to collect some gems you're going to be looking at the bottom row of cards the easiest ones to purchase and sort of going well which ones can i afford you can kind of watch what the other players are collecting see if they're going to gazump you to any of these cards and sort of go ah do you know what i'll just get the blue one i've got the chips for blue and i'll take that the second you put a card into your tableau you're going in a certain direction you've got one blue you're that much closer to buying certain cards in the top row and attracting certain nobles and it's almost as if the game might not decide your strategy, but the minute you start collecting things, then your tactics kick in, and you start looking, and you start saying, oh, this is suddenly cheaper, therefore i go after that, because the less often you can collect chips, and the more often you can pay just with the cards in Tableau, the quicker you're going to be able to buy those cards in, the quicker you're going to build it up, and the better you're going to be doing. So, it's suddenly, it, the game sort of manifests itself at its own pace, Sean.
0: Yeah, it really, really does, and... I can only really echo what you've just said. You put it perfectly. You, you scratch the surface of this game, and you just start off with these simple choices. And as I said, once you start that engine, that engine sort of propels you forward. And you, you've now that you've got the beginnings of that engine, you know what direction you're going in. And I think this would be a this is a really really good game for someone to to explain to them how an engine builder actually works where you just start with nothing you slowly build it up and by the end you've got this sort of massive machine behind you that's almost doing your work for you but you've had to work quite hard to build
1: you're right what also helps in this is that the turns are really quick as well and everything that everyone's doing is open so turns are going to come around to you almost too quickly in fact i think in a lot of games i've played it's it's been your turn is to do one of the three actions refill the row and then gently punch the person on your left to remind them it's their turn because in certain games you have too much time to think. In this game, certainly, once you get into it and you start realising, oh wow, hold on a second, you're you're thinking, you don't even realise your turn's come round again. You haven't had long enough to plan what you want to do or where you want to go or what particular chips you want to take and what other players are doing, especially to the chip stock at certain times of the game, does influence what you're doing and you can look at the other players and decide to take chips out just to prevent them from getting something or reserve a card and take it away. So, it, it there is a certain level of interaction it's not terrible you can always recover from what people do to you it's very quick so you're not sitting there bored or with ap at any point and it like you say it introduces certain gaming mechanisms i think it's a fantastic gateway game and i mentioned earlier it's advertised as two to four players when playing with with gamers and people who are a bit mean i tell you what playing with five players is really really good because it makes all the resources much much more scarce and therefore it makes it much more nasty just taking a couple of chips for color or looking and seeing oh, i'm going to take the last black one well if people haven't got enough chips now to play for a carton these black they can't buy anymore till i decide to pay mine back in you can start playing it as actually a little bit more of a gamer's game not to say it's adding too much depth to it but it, that that resource sort of denial of other people really makes a difference
0: i think it really scales well from two to as you say five players if if you want to push it that far and i also think the other end of the scale is quite gamey as well because it's very zero sum it becomes very in your face you know exactly what the other person is going for so and you have the power to deny them that as you said that reserve the card option can be really really verging on mean sometimes because you can just take a card that you know somebody else wants
1: It can, yeah, but because they limit you to only three cards in your hand, it's not so bad, right? Because you you can't keep on doing it, and also cards will get renewed straight away. And and generally, the most you can do is kind of slow someone down, but also you're taking a whole turn to do it. If you need that gold chip, it can be really handy. If you're planning long term, which I've seen people do, take a couple of level three cards and go, right... They're quite similar, these level two, these level three cards I've got. So if I build my engine towards them, that is a whole whack of points I'm going to be able to score at the end. It's definitely possible to do. It's possible to just go after level one and two cards, and just by scoring one or two VPs, actually you can get built up really quickly up towards, you know, start hitting double figures, and then those guys who, who, who have been slowly going and trying to build up towards big noble scores and what have you, are suddenly under pressure then. It's, it's nice, it's... Again, it's not too deep, but there's nice little tactical things you can do with each other. You can screw each other, but not too badly. No one can really get slowed down too much. I think there's a real nice balance between chasing VPs, going long-term, and affecting what everyone else does.
0: Yeah, just going back to your interaction point, I think this game can be... On one hand it could be really interactive because you're denying people things, people are always watching what you're taking, you're going for the same cards sometimes, but on the on the flip side it can be sort of everyone's quiet and nobody's really talking because you're all studying your own sort of table in front of you and there's no need for any real game chat. That I suppose is, is uh group dependent. So and I'm also also trying to think of some negatives, because we've been very positive about this game. And it's quite hard to think of them, but Ronan touched upon the the lack of theme. Uh, it's a very simply designed game. It looks okay. Um, is there a runaway leader potential in this, Ronan? Well, once, obviously, someone's got their tableau
1: built up, and it's an impressive tableau, and they're, they're paying for cards with it automatically, then, yes, they will start doing very well which is the bad news, the good news is that they're going to be doing so well that they'll win it very quickly. Once someone's got an engine that good going on, it's not going to take them long. They might need to just pick up one or two chips, and then they can just get level 3 card, level 3 card, level 3 card, game's over. So it's almost you don't realise how fast that runaway leader is running until they steam past you, and then whoosh, they're over the horizon, and they're gone, and it's game over. So it's not sort of one of those ones where someone gets in the lead early, and then they're just creeping away slowly throughout the whole game, and no longer do anything to stop them. It, I think the game's first, it's not that long for it to be like that, and secondly, I think that in terms of points, how you think you're doing. Generally, if you're going to score points early and you're trying to rush to 15 points, you, your engine will not be as good later on. So, but those players will be coming from zero points. So, so both sort of approaches are perfectly valid. So I think your last thing I did want to mention is it's a very simple thing uh, You'd have thought little gems would have represented the gems in the game or or it could have been just cardboard tokens or cards or what have you. The fact that they're using decent, weighty, fairly big poker chips not the greatest quality in the world but but they're they're pretty nice. I think that does add something to the game—a little physical thing. If you want to collect the chips, there's always people are always playing with the chips they've collected. There's there's something physically satisfactory towards having something like that that's nice and weighty. And you've been our components, man. Surely I would expect you to comment on it.
0: <laughs> For me, it's the fact that they're big and they're visible. They're they're really you can see across the table whether it's two, three, four, or five. Indeed. People, you know exactly what they've got because they are quite big. They're very, they stand out from each other really well, and that, I think that that adds to the game. You're not constantly having to stand up, look, all oh, what have you got? How many of them have you got? It's easy. You can tell immediately. So yeah, they they look. They're decent. It looks nice. The, the pictures on the card look nice, but you tend to forget what the pictures look like because you're always concentrating on those little gem pictures. So, you, to be honest, the pictures kind of blend into one, one another for me. But, yeah, it's perfectly nice-looking game.
1: Cool. So, Sean, do you want to give us your final thoughts on Splendor?
0: As I said, didn't think I was going to enjoy this, and... I did actually enjoy it uh, once I played it. I can see why it was nominated for the Spiel de Jahres, because it's very, very accessible, and it teaches people about a specific mechanism within a game. And I think that's what the Spiel de Jahres tends to be about, very accessible games, games that anybody can come and pick up and to bring new people into the game in fold. It looks fine, it looks good, it plays well with all the the player numbers, and I think it's... uh, it's a it's a good game i wouldn't necessarily buy it i don't think there's enough in it for me personally to go and buy it but i'm more than happy to give it a game at any time
1: i think i have been pretty positive all the way through but all the positives are everything's good everything's good about it the components are good the gameplay's good teaching it is easy you're right it's very accessible easy it's a, it's a good game that's all i could go with it takes half an hour sit down smash through it yeah lovely for a filler wouldn't want it to last any longer it's not the best game i ever played but it's definitely worth if you play with with newer gamers younger gamers if you're teaching a lot of game group whatever i think splendor is, is a worthy addition to your collection because you will get lots of use out of it because casual gamers just seem to eat it up so a real worthy nominee for this Yarez and a decent game, splendor.
0: I sing of the tales of the wanderer, the rider of Yggdrasil. He gave up an eye into meme as well where deeply he drank his fill. For nine long nights old har hung he, in search of the spoken spell. The runes that he found drew sounds for man, and down from the tree he fell. My second game of this episode is Vikings, which is originally released in 2007, but has just been re-released. And it's published by Z-Man Games, designed by Michael Keesling. And Michael designed Tikal 1 and 2, Java, Mexica, Asara, and Coal Barons, among other games. Plays 2 to 4, with a playtime of about 60 minutes. And it's an economic game loosely based on Viking life and times, with elements of tile laying, worker placement, and a rather unusual method in gaining tiles and workers. So... How do you play Vikings? To explain how the game works, I'm going to first have to really explain the central board and, more importantly, the rotating wheel on that board. The wheel has numbers along the edge ranging from 0 to 11. And just off the edge surrounding the wheel are spaces for tiles and Viking meeples. This is where players will acquire these items and it forms a large part of the gameplay. Each game is going to consist of six rounds. And during each of these rounds, players will be gathering tiles and these... Tiles represent parts of islands and boats. To set up each round, 12 tiles will be almost randomly placed around the island, with the only caveat being that the ships must be placed from number 11 downwards and the islands from zero upwards. Then 12 Viking meeples are randomly drawn and placed in colour order as follows. Blue, these are the fishermen. Then yellow, who are the goldsmiths. Green, who are the scouts. Red are the nobles, black are the warriors, and grey these are your the boatsmen. Each of these coloured Viking types work in a different way, but I'll explain that later. So, the zero on the wheel will point to the first Viking in the aforementioned order. For example, if there is a blue viking present zero will point at the first one of these in clockwise order but if there's no blue it will move on to the first yellow and so on the rule then for the selection is that players may have any tile and viking combo as long as they pay the corresponding number on the wheel in gold with the exception of the zero which can only be obtained if there is only one viking of that color left or players who don't have enough gold to buy anything they must take the zero tile and viking. Once the zero is taken, the wheel moves forward to the next space containing a tile and viking. So what happens when the players obtain this tile and meeple? So each player has a base or a homeland that has spaces to place tiles horizontally for each colour viking, with blue at the bottom up to black and the very top row reserved for the ship tiles. The grey boatsmen don't have a section, but we'll talk about them a little while. When the players obtain a tile and viking they place the tile they place the tile in their homeland with the general rules of thumb being that at least one side must be adjacent to another tile or base it must be the right way up and tiles in that row must match sea to sea or land to land the boats can be started on any of the first three spaces but must then be placed adjacent to another but spaces four plus can't be placed until the first three have been filled once the tiles have been placed you have the opportunity to place a viking on the just place tile in the very carcassonne style but it must be placed on the designated row for that color viking if you can't or do not want to place a viking then it is placed in your personal reserve before i talk about scoring i just want to talk about ships and what they do ships work vertically and threaten all vikings in that column down to the row matching the colour of their sail. Any Viking on the vertical column threatened by a boat will not score and is redundant unless there is a warrior, which is the black Viking meeple, blocking that ship. That is the warrior's only function. Once a warrior blocks a the ship, then not only do the other Vikings in that column score, but the ship itself earns either points or gold. Now, at the end of each round, you get the scoring but even the scoring differs. In rounds 1, 3, and 5 is small scoring, and 2, 4, and 6 is large scoring. In the small scoring rounds, you only yield gold, which is provided by your yellow goldsmith. The large scoring means that everything scores, and goes something like this. Firstly, the grey vikings, remember them, the boatsmen? They come into play, as players can spend them to place vikings from their reserve onto the base. The boats score if they are blocked, The Red Noble Vikings score at two victory points each, if they're not threatened. The Scouts score one victory point and one for each Goldsmith and Fisherman directly below them. And in the sixth and final round, the Fishermen, these are the blue guys, we haven't mentioned them yet, they come into play. Each Fisherman feeds himself and four other Vikings, with a bonus for overfeeding and a penalty for underfeeding. Other end-game scoring is for the largest complete island, the most complete islands, and the player with the most unused boatsmen left. There are advanced rules, and this version adds an auction-to-be-start player, change how the boatsmen work, and brings in additional tiles that shake things up a little, and makes the tile selection stage even more important. Now, I'm bored of talking, Ronan. What do you think?
1: Well, I am going to take the Sean roll. At the start of this and say to you that Firstly, the game is really well produced All the bits look fantastic It's visually appealing, the colours are striking However, as well as being colourful And there being spatial aspects to the component. Both these things tie into actual mechanisms within the game. So the colours are valid. When you're looking at something and it's a red cell, for example, that means something. And when you're looking at the colours of the Vikings, that means something and they tie together. And I find that really fantastic that a lot of time when you get a lot of chrome and good looks in the game, it's, it's almost distracting or it doesn't particularly mean anything. However, in this case, the visual design and the mechanical design of the game have been tied together beautifully.
0: Yeah, it was one of my major, major points I wanted to make that there's there's no waste in this game. Everything ties together, everything (laughs) works.
1: Unlike any (laughs) presenters.
0: Well indeed, indeed. Everything everything works for a reason. There's nothing there that's just for art sake. It's it's all because it integrates with the game. And that that again, as Ronan said, it really fascinates me how they've done this. So also, the wheel in this round and a big part of the game. It's very clever. It makes you think even about your tile selection. You might want something that you can't really afford, but are you going to spend all your money to block somebody else because you see they're getting close to finishing an island, or, or they're getting too many red nobles and you don't want them scoring? And it That is very interesting how that all works. There's even tales of people, and I've seen it myself, people just spending all their money so that they can get that zero tile to stop somebody else who hasn't got as much money getting that zero tile. So there's a lot of strategy just in that one wheel. In
1: terms of the way the rest of the game works, if the selection of tiles and Vikings were done in a different way, it could be a multiplayer solitaire game. It could be that you're just building your own little tableau, dealing with your own little threats, and just operating in your own little world. That wheel is the very, very heart of the game. It's where the vast majority of the interaction comes. It's where almost all the tricky decisions come. There is some spatial aspect elsewhere when you're building your, your islands up, but so much is centred around... What is really quite a simple idea, a simple way of just getting the resources that you need the Vikings and the islands. It, uh, sure, and it's the complete heart of the game. It drives an auction mechanic, it drives your special island building mechanism, it drives, I say, what Vikings that come into your islands, which are you going to be able to have and which you're not, whether you're going to get threatened by raiders, all from just one simple mechanism with these 12 spaces on. It really is supremely clever.
0: It is, and uh, I think that's the word that we're going to be using quite a lot with this game: is that it's just clever. Now, moving away from just the wheel, the, the ships. The ships aren't just there to stop you scoring. They're not. I love the way that these ships become. They start off as a bane, and they move into boon territory once you've got them blocked. You actually want those ships some people will actually actively go for the ship some people will be dreading getting that that green or that blue ship that takes out that whole column but some people will be yeah i bring it on i've got the black warrior waiting for that baby right here i'd love the way that the ships as i said go from a bane to a boon
1: i've never had them go from a bane to a boon they just only ever seem to be a bane to me (laughs) <laughs> I can never get the black Vikings. I've done it, honestly, I don't honestly. It happens to me every single game of this. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I feel like I'm too easy manipulated in this game on that wheel. That I'm too obvious and I get messed with too much. I don't. I can't understand what I'm doing wrong. Anyway, uh, Sean, I have got a couple of things to say to you though, because the game hates you. When we kind of talk about how it's this nice game, we build up your islands and your Vikings. Everything's nice and cool. It's not nice and cool. The game hates you the spatial aspect is difficult once you've started building your islands you can never get the bit you want people will always you're getting the start that start of island tile the end of island tile whatever it might need to make the viking that's available useful to you you just cannot tie the two things together
0: i absolutely agree uh, the frustration well the tension when that t- when that tile draw is made and you can see the tile that you want and you know somebody's going to jump in and get it before you, or do you spend every last penny? Because you can turn victory points into gold in this game. Do you spend every last penny you have and victory points to get to that tile first, or do you leave it, which is probably the sensible choice, and then someone is bound to steal it? There is a lot of tension in this game. For sure.
1: And the, ten- the next bit of tension, though, is running short on money. You are guaranteed at some point to run short of money. Now, you can pay bridge points one for one to get gold, but it's an awful thing to do because I'm not going to be scoring loads of bridge points. And oh, once you run short of money and people realise this and start stitching you up and just leaving you with the rubbish zero or the next one is worth six, and you're just stuck taking rubbish tiles all the time, just head in hands, just a, an absolute parade of Vikings waiting for you to get some boatmen to get them across to your islands. Oh, Sean, the money is so tight.
0: The money is very tight. It's, it's billed as an economic game, but gosh, it's an economic game set in very harsh times. Good Lord, it's difficult to get your hands on some gold, especially as you go to the upper echelons in this game where the, the sort of top end of the player count is very hard to get your hand on money.
1: What is up with all the other players looking at the colour of Viking you need, and I'm looking at those black protecting Vikings now and just nicking them from you. Everyone else negative drafting you and leaving you stuck. Leaving you with another green Viking. They know you can't play to that island tower and you know that they're covered completely in boats. Is it just that I'm rubbish at this game?
0: I think a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. And column B being that people do like to see you suffer, Ronan.
1: <laughs> For my sins. <laughs> uh, at the end of it all, at the end of six rounds, when you suddenly you start to feel better about yourself, it then brings in the Agricola.
0: Boom! Half your population starved to death. Yeah, that that, that upsets me. You, you can be doing so well, and that's why every one of these coloured Vikings is so important. You can't really ignore any of them, because they're all very important. Now, there is an argument to say that the biggest point scoring a Viking is this blue fisherman at the end of the game, because, effectively, if you don't feed your guys, every one of these that you didn't get is worth minus five. So... It, it, it's it's a big big slap in the face at the end of the game. If you've done fantastically, you've built your islands perfectly. You've you've got all the other colours. You've blocked your ships, and all of a sudden, I've only got one blue. Oh, that's like what minus fifteen or something, minus twenty possibly. Ow, that's a big kick in the head.
1: <sighs> okay,
0: <laughs> but a good kick in the head. A kick in the head in the, in in the best sense of the way.
1: The other thing I say to you, in terms of when you start playing this game, it is not the easiest game to get grips with when you first start playing. Most specifically, it's not so much that the everything's very difficult to learn the rules, because when you're playing it's quite simple, it's... More that, it's very hard to tie those initial actions into any sort of a strategy. It's very hard to see the importance of, of having the fishermen and feeding your people. It's very difficult to see how you're gonna defend yourself against raiders, it's very easy to get stuck being given these boats and it doesn't feel like what you can do with it. You have to be very tactically flexible during the game, even when you know it, as well as having an overarching strategy, and that can be quite tough when you don't know how the
0: game's gonna go. Yeah, you're absolutely right, but I think the fact that these, the Vikings and the tiles come out in waves. It, it, it doesn't make it as overwhelming as that could be. So if, if it was all at you and if everything was thrown at you and you didn't know what way to go, I think fair enough. It might be a bit overwhelming. You might be a bit taken aback and you might just end up sort of curling up into a ball and crying. But I think that they do come out in waves and it is 12 at a time of each of them and you do kind of... You can, you can It narrows down your choices to a degree. You know what you want for your next round, basically. So, yeah, I, d- I get what you're saying completely, and it can be a little bit much for maybe a new player. But one of the things I was going to say to you, Roland, is this. not I'm not saying it's a gateway game, but do you think it's a gateway to Euro games? No.
1: I think... That's quite <laughs> exactly. No, you're wrong. <laughs> I think... It's a good next step game. A next step game with players who you think are interested in getting deeper into the hobby. There's certain players, you know, that you play a gateway game with them and you think they've really enjoyed this. But do you know what? I think they just want to play gateway games. I think, you know, what we would call gateway games, which is cool. You yeah, know, more casual games and, and no problem. Maybe like Splendor we talked about earlier or maybe even Fauna if you don't like them. With players who've played those gateway games and they're shown interest in deeper mechanisms and you think, I think Vikings is a great game to then move them on. Because, like I said, it, you're just choosing from a wheel, so mechanically it's not that difficult, but it kind of shows you how the decisions you make in the game can ripple throughout six rounds and that later on you may be paying for decisions, or benefiting from in fact, the decisions you made earlier. It's also a game that you're going to get better at as well. I think more experienced players definitely have an advantage at it um, and, and be able to plan ahead. And I, I think that for a next step game, a game that you can get better at is something that's that's a good one to go with because the player can then see their own progression and kind of go... It's we're In the whole sea of gaming, hobby gaming... When you first get thrown into it, it can be very difficult. You just think you're useless. You just think, oh, man, all these people have played so many games for so many years, and they know the rules for so many games, and they own hundreds of games, and they're just going to beat me again and again and again and again, which does happen a lot. So to have a game in which you can get better at, and it doesn't take 20 games, it only takes three or four games of it, I think can be very encouraging to players who are coming in, who want to you know, swim a bit deeper into the waters of hobby gaming, and are, and are ready to make... That that strike out. This is a good one for those.
0: Right, I think we again we've been quite complimentary about this game. I just want to run a, through a couple of. I, so wait, nit- I gave
1: you five reasons why I, the game hates you,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but in a good way. <laughs> I, I think uh, these are really really nit- nitpicky. Do you really get the feel that you're playing as a Viking in this game? Uh, it's the only thing for me. Is the theme isn't isn't in the great. I think you can play with anything really. But and those island tiles. Sometimes it's quite quite difficult to work out which way they're up. They're all very samey, but they are very, very small problems. Now, I've got a question for Ronan. Now, we did mention that there are advanced rules for this game. I've only played with them the once, so I, don't, I haven't really made up my mind whether they add to the game, take it away from it. I've got my suspicion that I'd rather play the basic game a little bit more. Uh, Ronan, you've played it a little bit more than me. What do you think?
1: I think that the auction thing is a bit of a waste of time it just kind of slows things down and you don't really gain that much from it uh, i just don't think it's worth it so the whole thing of the auction you can throw one of the vikings out of the game and all the rest of it i just think that's a waste of time the whole boatsman only be able to move one Viking at a time does may obviously make it more difficult which i think is good if you're all good players of it i think it's really harsh for new players of the game but if everyone's quite competent at the game to bring back that sort of punishing aspect of it rather than everyone just being very successful i think it can be nice but only with certain groups and with the special tiles i actually think that that adds a fair bit to it with the special tiles you get to choose if you're one of the first four people to pay the most they can for a tile so if, if the most expensive one is costs eight, and you and you and that's the one you choose to buy and you pay eight, you also get to choose a special tile for it. I think they add a good balance as well. I think that that's quite interesting. It gives people more of a reason to take a risk and sort of splurge out rather than quite often, especially experienced players can be quite cautious in what they're doing because they know that at certain points you don't want to get screwed in having to take certain tiles that are no use to you. So the tiles, I think... Th- that's what I probably I'd put in first of all I think if everyone was up for it I'd put in the Boatsman and with the auction i just got no interest in it to be honest
0: I think you've hit the nail right on the head there Ronan from my one player with all three of those added. The, it was the auction that I thought mm, maybe maybe a bit too much there didn't really see the point of it and the tiles made made that choice of on the wheel even more important so it, it did add something to the game Ronan what do you think of the game in general
1: I think this is as you'd expect from most Kiesling and/or Kramer games. In this case, just Michael Kiesling. It's technically really tight. It's real tight blend of mechanisms that he's got to work fantastically well together. It is complex. It is not mechanically complex, which, as if you've been listening before, you'll know is one of my hates in a game. I don't like it to be over complex mechanically, make the decisions difficult, and that's what it does here. And yet it still plays in under 90 minutes. It's thinky, it's challenging, you are forced to play tactically, yet you have to have a strategy. It really is a very strong title. I'm really happy it's back in print. And Vikings, from when I first played it back in 2007 all the way through now, seven years later I'm still playing it, gets a big thumbs up from me.
0: For me, I didn't actually play it back in 2007 and it went out of print. I never really got to play it. It was always one of the most sought after items in any maths trades on Board Game Geek that I was involved in. I was always really interested in the game. When it came back into print after a big clamor from gamers, I bought it immediately and fell in love with it. There's a lot of things to consider in this game. It's very reactive. There's a lot of replayability because of that random draw. I haven't really explored the advanced rules and to be honest, i don't want to yet there's so much in that base game that i'm i think i'm, I'm gonna get another 5 10 15 games before i really want to explore those advanced rules it's just a great game lots to think about as runner said you've got that overarching strategical look at it but you've got to play tactically it's very tit for tat sometimes a great game really well put together and very well thought out that's vikings <music>
1: So our fourth and final game we're going to talk about this episode is Valley of the Kings. This is a game for two to four players, reported playing time of 45 minutes, which isn't far off. It is designed by Tom Cleaver, who has designed some smaller games, but none of them are yet ranked board game geek. And this is published by AEG, one of the biggest American publishing houses with the likes of Love Letter, Smash Up, Trains, Thunderstone and more and more. So Valley of the Kings is an Egyptian themed deck builder in which each player takes the role of a noble who's going to be furnishing their temple and the big sort of selling point to this one is as well as being a deck builder it also has a mechanism which i think we're going to call deck breaking because you're going to have to get cards into your deck however you're going to have to remove them from the deck and use them to furnish your tomb so they're out of your deck in order to score points at the end but we're going to get to all of that So, each player starts with an identical deck of 10 cards. Each of these cards is worth 1 gold when trying to buy cards during the game, as in most deck builders. It's worth 1 victory point if you manage to entomb it into your tomb during the game. And there are 4 varieties of those cards in your starting deck, and they each have a different type of action you can perform with them. You also receive a rule summary card, which is quite handy, although it doesn't detail the exact setup of the starter decks, just a little point there, and also a tomb card, which is empty. So the tomb card is there, and you're going to lay underneath them, or, or actually splay upwards from there, all the cards you managed to put into your tomb. Each player draws 5 cards, and that's what you do at the start of every turn in order to form your hand. You also form a pyramid of cards from the stack of cards. Now, the stack of cards is made up of 2 different levels, the level 3 and level 2 cards, and all the level 2 cards go on top of the level 3 cards, so they'll be available first during the game. The pyramid you make consists of a row of 3 cards, and above it a row of 2 cards, and above it a row of 1 card, and they come out randomly out of the stack. And available to buy during the game are only the cards in the bottom row, and those other cards will fall down. It's called crumbling into the bottom row, so you can see what's coming through during the course of the game. The last bit of setup is just to take one card off the top of the stack, turn it over, and form something called the Boneyard. It's basically a discard or a trash pile, and there's certain cards which are going to interact with that Boneyard during the game, so you just have to start it off with one card. Now, talking about those cards in the stacks a little bit more, they come in sets there are two of each particular card and there are different sets for example there are statues in the game and there are seven different types of statues in the game and there are two each of each of those seven different types there's also things like books there's six different books in there there's canopic jars there's four of each there's sarcophagi three of each amulets five of each you get the idea Also in those stacks, as well as those sets of different cards, there are unique artefacts. Each card in the game is going to have a gold value, similar to what I said about the starting cards, that's how much they're worth when they're in your hand you're trying to purchase. They're going to have a cost in the top right hand corner, as normal deck builders, that's much gold you have to spend in order to purchase them. They're also going to have an action on them, so... On your turn, you play all five cards from your hand if you choose, and you you can use them to do one of three different things. First of all, you can use them to buy cards. So you add up the value of cards you wish to put together towards purchasing a particular card, and you say, Here you go, here's my to starting deck, here's my three one gold value cards. I'll buy that one value canopic jar, for example. That card then naturally comes into your discard pile. It's available for you when you shuffle up and redraw from your deck. The second thing you can do is all cards have got actions on them. And each type of card has got unique actions. Each individual one of those six books has got an individual action to them. And like I said, there's, there's two of each in the game. And your starting cards all have actions. So what sort of things do they do? Well, with your starting cards, they do things like... When you're purchasing cards, I did say you can only buy cards from the bottom level. So one of them allows you to swap two cards within the pyramid. So if there's something up on the top that you fancy, you can just... Bring it down to the bottom and then it's able to buy. Another one is a defensive card, it's the offering table that prevents other players from attacking you. There's the urn, which lets you take the top card of your discard pile, it might be something valuable, and put it back on top of your draw deck. It lets you cycle cards a bit quicker. So you can see there's all types of actions. And then so many different types of actions from the stack, it's really hard, in fact, even when you're playing, to keep track of everything you can do. The last thing you can do is you can entomb one card out of your hand per round and you simply take that card you tuck it in a splay fashion underneath your tomb and then that's out of your deck for the rest of the game but only those cards in your tomb are going to score you points at the end of the game and i'll explain to you how now i did mention that the cards in the stack are level two and three Eventually, of course, the level 3 cards are going to start coming out, and they are more expensive than level 2 cards, and generally they have higher gold values for purchasing and quite useful actions on them as well. At the end of the game, you're going to add up the values of all the cards in your tomb, and this is where it becomes important, because there is a set collection mechanism going on. The cards mostly are going to score in sets. Let's talk about the two different types of cards that aren't. For starters, each starter card you've managed to put in your tomb is going to score you one victory point. There are also all those unique artifacts in the game and they're going to score you a set number of victory points each as detailed on the card. Lastly, and this is where most of your points are going to come from, You are going to look at the cards in sets. You're going to group together all your individual types of books. So if you've got two books of the earth, for example, they don't count, they just count as one card, it has to be individual types. But you look at all the different types of books you've got. So let's say at the end of the game I've got the Book of the Earth, Book of Traversing Eternity, Book of the Gates, and maybe even the Book of the Heavens. So that's four different types of books. I then score for my collection of books the square of that value. So four different types of books. It scores me 16 points. If I've managed to collect five different types of statues, for example, that's going to score me 25 points. So as you are buying cards into your deck and looking at how to use them either for purchasing or actions or entombing, you're always keeping in your mind you want to do a set collection thing in your tomb. Now, at the end of the game, when all the cards from the stack and from the pyramid have gone and everyone's had an equal number of terms you add up the points in your tomb and the most points wins sean value the kings takes deck building tries to add this deck breaking mechanism to it
0: what do you think at the top of the show we talked about fauna and we heartily disagreed on fauna and i think we're going to end the show heartily disagreeing because I didn't really like this game very much but I know you loved it Ronan. <laughs> so let's start at the looks of the game. It just looks meh. There's they've not really tried. It's quite a lazy design. It's not it's not terrible. The artwork isn't terrible. And there's only, I suppose there's so much you can do with an Egyptian theme but it doesn't it doesn't grab you. It doesn't look amazing it you do tend to have to lean over the table reading all these different cards as they come out and try to work out what they do and we will get to it later but it doesn't probably doesn't matter what they do at the end of the day
1: oh now let's stick to look shall we let's stick there i actually think that the cards look okay I Uh, i think the artwork's okay i think the iconography i mean it's not awesome, but it's 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 okay. It's no problem to them. In fact, they look all right. I think the quality's quite poor. They're not nice to handle. They're not that easy to shuffle. They do stick together a bit. So I'm not happy with the quality of the cards themselves. I think the fact that you get the little r- rules reference and help cards is quite cool. I think that's quite handy, nice to see. At least it comes in a very sensibly sized box. It exactly fits the game, and that's it. It's small, but it's sensibly sized. It's also sensibly priced. Um, I think they've been very ambitious in the number of different actions you can do with all these cards. There are so many different cards in the game that I don't think they could come up with a set of iconography to cover all the different actions that they've made available. So yeah, there's lots of text. Not sure they could have done it in any other way.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. But I think it does take away from the game. It's a deck building game that you're taking from a tableau of cards on the table, so this got its everything's gonna have its sort of similarities to Dominion. But where it tries to break off is with this deck breaking system as Ronan called it, where you're burying a card. Now other deck building games have buried cards before, but not really as a fundamental part of the game. Also, you've got the tableau is in a pyramid shape, so I think that's very thematic towards the game, obviously. But I don't think... I'll move away from the deck burying for a minute. I had high hopes for this pyramid structure where the cards filter down, so all the cards aren't immediately available to you. And I had quite high hopes that this would be interesting, but it it should have worked better than it did, Ronan.
1: That's because it didn't work at all, short, <laughs>
0: <laughs> You only have three
1: cards to choose from. A fair amount of the time, you, you maybe can't afford one or two of them. So you've got one or two cards to choose from. Who wants to buy, play a deck building game where you can only choose from one or two cards?
0: I think they tried to make oh, the... The filtering down, the toppling down of the cards from the top, like strategic or tactical rather than strategic, sorry. All right, well, so,
1: so, so let me ask you a question. How many times did you consider how the pyramid was, pyramid was going to crumble when you're buying game, cards during a game of this?
0: I did it once, and then I realised it didn't matter. So I didn't bother thinking about it again.
1: Even two-player, it doesn't matter. With four player, you're not going to see those cards. They're gone. They're not going to be there your next turn. You do not care what's on the levels above because they're not going to be there.
0: Yeah. (laughs) As I said, a bit disappointed with that. I was looking forward to that and I thought that was interesting. Zero
1: strategy when you're purchasing. Zero strategy. (laughs) Indeed. Whatever you can afford. And just to jump in quick, and I'll keep jumping on top of you, but also think they thought it would be more strategic because you'd be playing cards for actions from your hand but you can't your hand needed to be bigger because you cannot play for actions and afford to purchase and in regularly you cannot do all three so you're just not manipulating these these cards that manipulate the pyramid just get thrown away because they're rubbish next
0: <laughs> I think yeah I think you're right I think what they were hoping is that there would be a decision to make whether you whether you in drop the a card in the well, yeah, steady on, steady on. Whether you drop a card down or not, and who's going to get that card, or uh, how do you line up a card for yourself, almost, especially in a two-player game. But it really didn't work like that. So, moving on to this deck burying thing, or deck breaking, as Ronan called it. Did that work for you, Ronan? Did that add anything to the game?
1: Well, it added something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. Okay, you are forced to get rid of your starter cards, okay? Your starter cards are worth one gold each. When you get to the second half of the stack and the level three cards, these cards cost six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You cannot have those one value cards hanging around. It's just not worth it. So you're forced to entomb them early. You're forced to just get get them out of your hand, otherwise the other players are just going to get ahead of you if they're doing it in the gold rush, okay? So okay, you have to get rid of your cheap start cards, or track them in the boneyard, or discard them to other players, or whatever it might be. There's different ways of getting rid of them. Or you cannot afford to buy later. However, even when you're trying to get rid of those, it is often you're you're not choosing what to entomb. You're not choosing to entomb to a certain set because it's what's in your hand decrees what you can do. If what's in your hand says. I have to use this card as an action just to be able to buy anything. You know, swap swap them in a pyramid or do something or reduce it or make all my other cards worth more gold. There are so many actions, it really is very confusing. But I have to use that one. So then, because I've used that one, only these three will help me purchase that card. So this is the last one I have to entomb it. And if you don't entomb, you're not going to score any points at all. But even that, in that your hand size is too small, you're too restricted in what you can do, you often never get to use a card for an action after purchasing it you're just entombing it straight away and not in an interesting way you just have to but because you have so little choice in what you're buying you're not even setting your deck up to entomb anything in particular you're just buying what you can there may be a little bit of oh i've got a few statues i may as well take the statue but whether you can then entomb that statue or whether you're buying it to use for actions or whether to entomb it does not come into it. It is not possible to plan like that because your deck becomes so small at the end when you're rushing to entomb everything that it just doesn't matter. Everything I've bought is going to get chucked in my tomb and we'll see what goes from
0: there. I actually think, and it's not much of a choice, granted, I think it's the only real choice in the game. Because let's face it, in this game, early doors, you're going for money. So you're just getting cards that are going to give you a little bit more money to prepare for the better cards coming in. Later on, all you're doing is entombing. So I think the, in the middle of the game, you do have that choice of what sets you're going to go for, what what you what you're going to entomb and when you're going to entomb it and what you're going to risk. And there's when a very very
1: when you can't choose when. <laughs> if it's in my hand and I don't need it right now to buy that card, I entomb it. But often, the ones you want to entomb, you can't because you need that money. And and and, and the end of the game, you know yourself, so many cards come out that you entomb stuff that I was left with, what, two cards at the end of my last round of the last game we played.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Two I mean, cards I had.
0: Yeah. Played. Oh, 100%. The last... The last... I meant there was maybe... And when I said there wasn't much choice, I meant maybe I made three choices in the game. Uh, that game, that game, that card might benefit me a little bit later on, but you know what? I'll take a risk and entomb it. That's it. That happened maybe three times. Other than that, it was obvious I had to go for money at the beginning, and then it, when the card stack starts to deplete and you know the end of the game is coming close, it's obvious that you just fire every single thing into your into your tomb. And whatever cards you happen to have picked up, if they help you do that, so be it. There's no, there's no strategy to this game. There's very little tactics, and yeah, not much of a game.
1: No, you just the only cards you keep back towards the end are the ones that let you entomb something. The ones that let you entomb from your discard pile, and entomb from your hand, or entomb. So if it says entomb, I'll keep that in my deck, and then right at the end I'll chuck that in as well. That's the, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Why ones with more gold? Buy ones that say entomb, keep the entomb ones, and then they're all going to go in my tomb anyway.
0: And the last few rounds, Ronan, as as we had so few cards, I think our last three rounds each, we had the same round. I had a card that let me entomb something, a card that let me duplicate something, and a card that let me take something off the stack. That's my, that was my last three rounds. i do that, that, and that again. Oh, look, same three cards. I'll do that, that, and that.
1: My daughter same thing. kept... The same six cards for about her last half a dozen turns.
0: Yeah, she had, right.
1: She'd buy one. She had a card that let her take one from the pyramid. She'd do her normal entomb, and she had a card that let her entomb one. So she was buying two and entombing those two. Buying two, entombing those two. Buying two, two, buy two, entombing those two. It was just... Oh, Jesus. I know you're going to beat me. Okay. Please hurry up and beat me. It's... Oh, Sean. I think we might be ready to sum up. I had, I had hopes. I had hopes. They're shattered. (gasps) They've been (sighs) doomed. Go on then. Sum up for me.
0: Right. Probably going to shock you a little bit in that I'd actually play it again. I wouldn't seek it out. I wouldn't buy it. But if someone was desperate to play it, I'd give it a go. It wasn't the worst half an hour I've spent in my life, but, it was one of the worst half an hour spent playing games, but yeah, not very good. Off you go, Ronan.
1: The whole deck building and then deck breaking idea may have something to it, but I think that the entombing had to be more difficult to do. I think that your hand size needed to be bigger so that you can use the actions in an interesting fashion. But I think they couldn't do that, because then everything became overpowered. There are so many different actions, and so many different connotations of actions. You could screw with each other, although it almost became pointless, because then the other person would just start screwing with you back, and just swapping rubbish cards backwards and forwards. It just does not work in this game. The game happened... We shuffled some cards around. I mean, we had people coming over and sitting next to us at, at Long Con at the weekend watching us play this a few times, asking questions, and we were just like, I don't know. And why is that happening? I don't know. And why are you into that card? I don't honestly know. It's just, I don't know. These cards are moving around, and I have very little impact on what's happening. When you build a deck in a decent deck builder, you're doing it for a reason. I'm going to train this card, and this card, and this card, and that card. And then they're going to come together and work in this fashion, which is going to allow me to do this. This is not like that. There are so many different actions. You cannot chain anything together. You so often have to just get rid of cards as soon as they come into your deck that they have no value to you. You don't care. It, it It's almost a game that happens to you by accident. You could almost, I, I mean almost, blindly deal each player 20 cards out the stack flip them over add up the set score the points and you would have the same amount of input as you have playing this game it's not the worst game i ever played but it's probably the worst game i've played that came out in 2014. it just wasn't very good i'm sorry and that was the very disappointing valley of the kings.
0: So there we have it, ending on a high note. That's episode 28, Picking Over the bones.
1: We hope you enjoyed listening to our episode, even the negativity on a couple of the games there from me. Vikings is really good, I like that game. Um, please do join us next time out when I believe we're going to be doing a special on expansions. The good, the bad, the ugly, and our personal top five expansions ever. Sean, hit me.
0: As always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network, along with the very best in board gaming podcasts. You can catch us on 2d6.org along with a whole host of Gaming Goodness. And if you want to email us with a question or an idea you have, then it's thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. And we are also on Twitter at GamePitpodcast Facebook. Come along to our Facebook page. And we have a guild on Board Game Geek. So hope to see you in one of those places soon. Music by E. Aram.